pretty smart ladies. Because people have opinions. I did a weird thing, then you did a weird thing. Weird in a way that was not my weird. Well, if you have enough peanuts, it should just bring harmony, right? Everybody, get down. Get down on the ground. Get on your knees, because we need to be small. We're supposed to exercise and eat healthy food and drink water. Leave me alone. I'm not going to bed at the same time every night. Um, Everyone, Michelle used her mom voice. <laughs> I mean, and I, I don't want to compare my kid to dogs. It might be squirrel murderers, but we still like ice cream. <laughs> when will my friend die? When will my friend die? Hmm. This one's a challenge. My, both of my eyes are twitching. the perfect time this is the best time all right hi everyone i'm michelle and i'm Catherine. and this is angreement where we're each going to talk about a weird thing a pop culture thing and a researchy thing and then try to bring them all together in the end so i Catherine, i think that you are up first this week I'm definitely a first this week. I kept making you go first. So, um, okay. So my weird thing for the week is very convoluted. It's very, 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 very convoluted. I want to, I'm glad to hear that because my weird thing is so super simple that I'm kind of embarrassed about it. Like it's like 10, it's, it's like six words and that's all I have. So (laughs) I'll take up all, you can take up all the weird thing time. (laughs) My, my weird thing is like, um, one of those crazy boards, like a homeland crazy board with red string of the guy with the with the eyes who hasn't slept in 48 hours pointing out the connections okay i'm ready i'm here for and it that, that is who i am as a person right now i've um i've had um i haven't been feeling my best i've been feeling fevery i don't have a fever i just feel fevery like that's my mood so um my weird thing is in a way Okay, I'm going to do spoilers. I'm going to start with my weird thing is moods, and we are going to end with a photo of a dead rat. So okay. let's get started. Okay, just just helping us prep for the journey we're about to take. I feel like we need that A to Z because I don't know how I'm going to, I don't know where I'm going. So like last week, your pop culture thing was the TikTok of the skateboarder, longboarder with cranberry juice. And that just resonated, you talked about how that resonated with so many people that got so popular. And I think that was because it was such a mood. It was a real vibe. All these words are very in right now, a mood, a vibe. And I have, I've been seeing a lot of discussions of those. Like before, last summer, it was hot girl summer. And now I've been hearing a lot. I don't know if you've heard this phrase, Christian girl autumn. I have not. Okay. <laughs> I do remember hot girl summer, but uh, girl summer. I'm not hip enough to know about Christian girl autumn. Um, which Crystal Anderson, who is on Instagram as beer bottles and chainsaws, and I can't recommend her Instagram enough. She is one of my favorite fashion icons. I think if we were going to credit anyone with the phrase hot girl summer, it needs to be her. So shout out to Crystal Anderson. But um, Christian Girl Autumn 
is um, an offshoot of Hot Girl Summer in a way. And I'm going to start with that because I find myself just um, trying to feel something a lot right now. I just, you know, time feels weird. I, I, it's getting away from me. I am not really feeling happy. I'm burnt out on feeling sad. Um, so I'm trying to feel something else. And so I read this article and I'll put it in the show notes on Vice that was called, it was basically about Christian girl autumn. And I'm going to read a little bit from it. It says the trauma of the ongoing pandemic has many pining for the past, feeling nostalgic for times that are firmly before and are in contrast, much simpler and safer. The meme of CGA, which is Christian girl autumn is new, but its traditions have deep roots. For decades, certain women, girls, have been counting down the days until fall. And I grew up in a place filled with such women, the suburbs of Houston. And I would say that you and I growing up in, um, in a small town in Missouri, these girls, these women exist. So the faux nostalgia I feel for CGA is both homesickness and projection. The CGA enjoyers always seem to have access to a feeling I would love to feel right now, effortless happiness. And so Christian Girl Autumn is about tapping into effortless happiness. And it's a happiness you see in what is so-called Christian girls. And Christian girls are girls who love autumn, who wear decorative scarves, they have cute hats, they drink pumpkin spice lattes, of course, they have um, beautiful wreaths on their front door for every season, and they burn a lot of candles, their houses smell good. It's that kind of thing, right? I think we know that vibe. And they just seem to be effortlessly happy. And of course, that's a faux nostalgia. Everyone has problems, but it's tapping into this happiness and this aesthetic that um, just really, really a coziness I think a lot of people want right now. And I have to admit that I have found myself without realizing it, almost as if an invasion of the body snatchers has happened um, with a lot of candles in my house. I don't know where they've come from. I'm burning a candle right now. I am burning a Honeycrisp Aspel candle from Trader Joe's. Um, I do it a lot. I do it so much. In fact, my husband bought me a candle wick trimmer. That's something that exists. So this kind of um, effortless happiness that Christian Girl Autumn stands in for really spoke to me. My husband informed me we're moving from Christian Girl Autumn into cold boy winter. Okay. That's going to be the new aesthetic. So look out for that. Anyway, all of this is to say that I think the world is desperately trying to find a vibe, trying to tap into effortless happiness, um, trying to feel something. I have to pause to say that I'm really, really following you, but I keep remembering that we're going to end up at a dead rat. Yes. That's why I started with this. So you can understand. (laughs) From honey crisp apples to dead rats. rats. 
The cold boy winter. No, I'm thinking about this. I'm trying to feel feelings and get in a mood. I forced my husband to make um, decorative ghost garlands out of cheesecloth, which is actually a very good craft. It's very easy to do. I'll put it in the show notes. That actually made me happy for about 10 seconds. Then they fell down. Can't keep them on the wall. So I failed at being a good Christian girl, autumn girl. So um, basically, I was thinking about this, and then I had a Zoom call with a colleague of mine. They're a collaborator. We work on academic stuff together. We're working on an edited collection on absurdity right now, which is really fun. And she is, I'm going to keep her anonymous and not say her name, but she is, she lives in New York. She is a really smart person. She's someone I look up to so much and respect so much. And a lot of the time when I find myself working with her, I just am like, I'm so lucky to have you working with me. Like, what do you see in me? And we both kind of raise each other's levels up. And she is very cool. She's very New York. And we were talking and she turned and said, you know, she was feeling sad. And then she was a little embarrassed and kind of covering up something behind her and finally said, yeah, I just, I just have this photo behind me of Albert Einstein. And I don't know about Albert Einstein. I I don't know much about him than anyone else knows about, but he's holding a book and he's wearing a scarf And it just looks so cozy. And I needed this photo in my life. And it was just a black and white photo of Albert Einstein taped to her wall in an otherwise beautifully decorated home. And so I think anyone, no matter who you are, needs is is trying to tap into this, right? Um, Because he looks like a Christian girl, Autumn girl. It was Albert Einstein as Christian girl, Autumn. No, but the fascinating thing is that she felt like she had to be embarrassed about that, about, about finding comfort and about feeling... I mean, and I think I've done that too. Like I, I like candles. I have one right here on my desk. It's a, this is a vanilla birch candle mm-hmm. and I burn them all the time. And I'm like, this is the silliest thing. This is just me burning money away. Right. Um, but like, I mean, and there's also that, the thing about like the, the pumpkin spice lattes have always gotten the hate, but have you seen the commentary about how like um, the spice blend of pumpkin spice has always been used for other people to like, to like make, to bake pumpkin pies or to, to bake things. But it was when women started using them as individual moments of escape that it became shameful, right? Like if you're, if you're cooking pies for other people, then you're a good woman. But if you're just enjoying your own individual latte for yourself, now you're being selfish and silly. And so I do think that there's something about like, why can't we just have some individual comforts, whether that's our Albert Einstein picture or our overpriced candle? Exactly. Even that moment you just shared with me, because I respect you in the same way that I respect her. And that fact that you have candles too just made me feel so much better. But why do women have to be like, why do we have to hide our candles? I have a candle. (laughs) (laughs) We should not be ashamed of our candles, ladies. Or our pictures of Albert Einstein in scarfs. So, good. yeah, yeah. So I just really love this idea. 
of something that brings you comfort is okay. And like you said, we should not be ashamed of it. And so that brings me to my two weird things. And the two weird things that I am clinging to right now. It's a picture of a dead rat. (laughs) They both come from this, my colleague that has the picture of Albert Einstein. Her thing of comfort is the photo of Albert Einstein. But she, I just want to say that I also try sometimes. um, I am someone who hates confrontation. I hate it. And I get my, my adrenaline goes up very, very fast at anything, anything that is a perceived criticism. Even if someone says, if I get an email from a student that is nice, my adrenaline goes up. If I'm just seen in the world, my adrenaline goes up. And so I really want to work on being stronger and being more aggressive. And so this person whose moment of comfort was the Albert Einstein photo There were two things this week. We had a Zoom meeting with somebody that didn't show up. They were over 40 minutes late. And I think I would usually sit there and go, okay, we'll wait for them. And then be very apologetic in my email saying, sorry, we missed you. 10 minutes into this person being late, she sent them an email, all caps saying, this is happening. And in it, she says, I've been up since 5 p.m. You're getting on this call. And I loved that. And that's, and then she had also a while ago sent me something that she sent to her TA, which was um, in the same kind of all cap saying, I can't respond to one more student email who hasn't read the syllabus. You warn them, you warn them I'm coming for them. And just that Tell them who sent you. <laughs> that kind of being in the world, I think I was thinking through this and I was thinking through that subject header. And that could be like my comfort, my pumpkin spice Albert Einstein. But then she today when I I was having like a moment where I needed to be aggressive, I was on a phone call and it was very difficult. And in that exact moment, the same woman texted me a photo of a dead rat (laughs) she was out on a walk and she said I don't know why but this feels so right and I just needed to send it to you and usually that'd be very scary to have someone be like (laughs) this is for you this dead rat um but I I loved it and it was it was a wonderful image. I this is why it's weird. This is why is this is my weird thing. Because it made me, and I'm sorry that was such a long story, but it brought me more comfort than any candle, any pumpkin spice. I love a pumpkin spice latte, by the way, especially the cold brew one. Um, and it brought me more comfort than any of those. And the fact that it came from her who's this really strong, really brilliant woman. It, it just, okay, so so I'm going to shut up now because I'm rambling. But on my board of crazy, I have found my Christian girl, Autumn, effortless happiness because this person thought of me and sent me a photo of a dead rat. So can, can you describe this photo? I'm trying, like... It was... <laughs> 
fate, it, it only gets worse. It was <laughs> beautiful fall foliage, New York City fall foliage. And it was a baby rat and it was very slimy. Oh. Um, it didn't, it wasn't trampled. It was just looked like it was sleeping. Okay. <laughs> um, if we were building up a following of podcast listeners at all, I feel like we've lost. <laughs> but I, ju- I just, um, stick with us folks. You know, you got to find your moments of happiness where you can get them. That was weird, but it was, it, it just resonated with it and she had resonated with it. And I think maybe sometimes it's like harder to find colleagues who can become friends. No, it definitely is. Just it's, as weird and fucked up as you. Yeah, no, you need that. You, you need that. Um, and I mean, I think that I, I just keep coming back. The part of this story that is really sticking with me is the hiding the picture, right? And the hide, like yeah. just... I mean, and the fact that like, because what it is about those women, the the Christian girl Autumn, is that they're so brazen about it, right? Like that's what we are so drawn to. It's not actually the items that they are enchanted with. It's that they're just allowed to be enchanted with them, that they don't have to pretend that they are above it or somehow better connected to some other aesthetic or beyond it, like just to be able to say, I like this thing that I like. And, and that's not just, of course, there's, I'm sure there's all this competition among who has the best kind of scarf and who got their <laughs> candles from the right. right store or what I'm like, I'm sure that it doesn't get to stay pure. And it's like, I'm just enjoying this thing. But I think that what we're resonating with isn't even the items that they are enjoying, but just that they get to brazenly enjoy things without having to hide them right like they don't have to hide their without guilty pleasures yeah like I mean their wreaths are on the front door right like that's such a good metaphor right yeah their wreaths are on the front door so and even that story being so long right that I I couldn't just say my well, it is a weird thing. To be fair, this category is a weird thing. If, if you had just said, my weird thing is I got really happy at a picture of a dead rat, I don't think that would have accomplished nearly as much as this story has, right? Like, Yeah. But I also couldn't just say, candles make me happy. But they do. My name is Catherine and candles make me happy. And I have many candles in my house. That... That it um, went out again, but I almost feel like we should keep it since it's you not being able to say that candles make you happy. <laughs> there we go. I see your candle. Yeah, I like it. Yeah. That was way okay. I'm gonna okay. Edit, I'm gonna edit this out too. But whew, I I don't know if I just sounded crazy or not, Michelle. But I can't tell you how happy that picture of a dead rat made me. I, you know, I am a firm believer in finding your happiness where you can. As long as you're not hurting anybody else and your dead rat isn't hurting anybody else. It's not like you killed the rat for the picture. I didn't. I hope she didn't. I doubt it. Just, no, no. (laughs) (laughs) So, Michelle, what is your weird thing this week? My weird thing is vampires didn't have fangs until the 1950s. (gasps) Oh! What? The end. That's my weird thing. 
moving on. No, I can give you some context. Um, <laughs> I need some context. So I, I don't have a whole lot of context. I am making virtual escape rooms for my daughter and her homeschool co-op class that I've been running every Friday in October, um, which are a lot of fun. And the kids are amazing. And I just, I love watching them solve these puzzles together. But I have had like one of the busiest weeks of my life, which is saying quite a bit because I have yeah. a fairly busy life. And so I've just been kind of like blindly like, oh, I need clues for the escape room because the kids are coming and they're going to want clues. And it's just like, so I've been looking through Halloween trivia stuff to try to create these clues for this virtual escape room. And um, one of these led me to researching the history of vampires, which has been pretty fascinating. And there's all these different vampire-like legends that date back millennia and all these different cultures. Um, And usually, like the one thing they all have in common is that they suck blood. So you would think that fangs would have been a feature for through it all, right? And to be fair, some of the creatures did have like fangs in the sense that they were creatures, you know, who normally have fangs. Like they were not, they were animalistic, not human. But the vampire, as we conceive of it, like the human turned into the undead that has fangs, did not have fangs until the 1950s because most of the entertainment outlets that featured the vampires were on the stage and wearing fangs made them speak um, unclearly. And so they didn't, they did not have fangs. And um, even like, who's the famous 1930s? Nosferatu? No, it starts with a B. Um, The Oh, Bella Lugosi. Yes, yes. That that vampire apparently portrayal in the 1930s did not have fangs. So it wasn't until the 1950s that um, they really started having these this fangs, and then it became a big thing because of like Halloween costumes and adults getting into Halloween costumes, and that's when they really started becoming a, a major feature of the mythos of vampire lore. So it was so people could buy shit. Yes. I see. It made them happy. <laughs> and I'm not going to judge them for it. No. Nope. You wear your things. interesting. And I wonder how they get, I guess prosthetics have just gotten a lot better. Yeah. Well, in the, um, the article did talk about the movement in the 2000s for real vampires, which were people who got like actual things implanted permanently to, um, you know, have the permanent appearance of a vampire. So it did have deep consumer roots at some point. That's so interesting that the aesthetics of vampires are driven by consumerism. (laughs) I like that. No, I don't like it, but I'm not going to knock people buying things to be happy this week. This week. (laughs) Not this this particular week. Next week, you're fair game. Yep, yep, yep. I love that piece of trivia. I really, really love that. Yes, Bella Lugosi um, did the portrayal in 1931, and that Dracula did not have fangs. It was not until 1958's British Hammer Films version starring Christopher Lee, who the article calls sexy, that the (laughs) fangs were popularized in movies. That's so interesting, because I'm looking at Nosferatu, because I was like, well, Nosferatu could have had fangs because that's a silent film but he has teeth that are just big teeth um that look like if you ever had a hamster and you didn't 
let it gnaw on things and their teeth got over. Oh yeah. You got to brought to us hamster teeth and no one would have wanted those. So like you said, where it looks more like animalistic and like a rodent, he looks like a rodent. That is not sexy. No, no, but that's a silent film. So he wasn't talking either way. And I just read the thing that changed that allowed them to have things in films was that there were stage microphones, so they didn't have to project their voice as much. So they could have things because of the microphones. Uh So let's go to pop culture. My pop culture this week. I'm going to be very quick about it. I have many feelings about it, um, but I have talked about dead rats. Ooh, but that's a pre-connection. Nosferatu looked like a rodent, looked like rodent dead rats. Um, So we film, we record these a few weeks in advance. And so really I wanted to just give this a shout out and recommend it to people, but I think it, stops airing November 7th. So I'm sorry to everyone, but I, over the weekend, watched a production of a theater piece called Circle Jerk. And yeah, I know, I know, <laughs> I know. Um, and it, yeah, it's, it's fair for the good. dead rats stay for the circle jerk. <laughs> this is really my week to shine. <laughs> Um, so it's, it's, if you've heard, I heard about it because I, um, follow Jeremy O'Harris on Instagram and he is the writer and director of Slave Play, which was off Broadway, went to Broadway. It got, um, it just, just, um, broke records for being the most Tony nominated play of all time. And it's a fairly controversial play. I have not seen it. But um, anyway, he he made a deal with HBO that he's going to do a project with them. But part of the contract he signed is that he gets funding for several theater productions of his choice, which I think is a very cool um, how media is moving. And that's an interesting deal that they will pay him to do a television show, but he wants money to have the freedom to do theater productions he wants to choose to put money in. And so Circle Jerk was the first one that he produced. And so it's, it was exciting. I wanted to see what it was all about. And it's done by a theater company called Fake Friends. And that's um, Michael Breslin and Patrick Foley. And the way it was done, you paid for it with a sliding scale. So you could pay anywhere from $5 to $25 for a ticket. And it was live streamed. And they did a lot of interesting things. Some of it was pre-recorded. Some of it was live. And it really embraced. I've seen some like live stream theater, some Zoom play readings. But this was the first time that I saw someone take this new medium of live theater being streamed and make it its own, where it was a unique thing. And it made me excited and it made me see the future of how theater can be and live in the world going forward. That if we can't be together in a theater for a long time to come, or even when we can, I think this is 
the first step in a whole new kind of thing. It was that exciting. It blew my mind with what they were doing. Now, the message that they were putting forth, the actual content of the play was very questionable. I don't know if it was brilliant or if it was so problematic I shouldn't be talking about it right now. Oh. But that's maybe kind of the excitement of live theater. Um, but they did a lot of really, really cool things where it felt so of this moment. And um, I really think that five years from now, 10 years from now, when we talk about the history of theater, it's going to be a moment. And, and we'll talk about how, how they made it and how they did it. That sounds fascinating. And when you were talking about, um, when you were talking, and it, it it sounds like it's not exactly like this, because when you went into the content more, it was more about what the content is actually accomplishing rather than what the, the quality of it. But when you were first talking about kind of the medium being so impressive, but the content maybe not necessarily being what you would recommend it on, it made me think about Bandersnatch, the, the Black Mirror experiment where they did the, um, you know, choose yeah. your the the choose your own adventure style black mirror episode that they ended up like delaying their whole season because it took so much longer to film than they thought because it's so complicated to make all those different storylines and and honestly like it's not that good right like it's yeah. it's just not it's just not a very entertaining thing to watch as a story um because i think it's so complicated that they i think they really misjudged how hard it would be to also make it good Yes. That many pieces. But as I was watching it, I kind of felt like, like you were saying, like, oh, I think I'm seeing the future. Like, I could see how this would be like the Pong, right? The the Pong that eventually becomes like, which they knew because it's based on, like, the, the story itself is about early video games and becoming, you know, more complex. So I think that they were pointing to that within the show itself. But just this idea of like, oh, we're going to look back on this and be like, oh, look, that's where it started. That's where they kind of began something new in the entertainment world and how we consume entertainment. Exactly. Exactly. That it doesn't have to be. Yeah, the content itself isn't what's groundbreaking and probably isn't going to date wonderfully. But the fact that A, there, you know, the way theater is funded and then who theater is made for, that who can afford to buy a Broadway ticket, right? Because who can afford to see the tickets who goes? So the fact that this cost $5 and then the funding to get it made is easier is really important. And I think can allow more things to be made. And um, and then I think they said that, yeah, they sold something like 30,000 tickets, which you don't do. Yeah, so- and the accessibility for like, I mean, I just... There's been so much commentary about how hopefully one of the things we'll keep in a, you know, vaccined world, vaccinated world, will be that we maintain different ways of accessing experiences because there were so many people who, you know, we told them like, oh, we can't put conferences online for you. You're going to either have to figure out how to afford it or figure out how to physically show up, even if you aren't physically capable of it. And it turns out that that was all bullshit, right? We can do it. We are doing it because when it was lose all your money or do it, they figured it out. But when it was cut off the access for this group of people or do it, they just cut off the access, right? So like, I think that we can no longer pretend like we can't do it. Um, which isn't to say that we have perfectly mimicked 
all of the, I mean, I, I certainly miss elements of in-person yeah. things. Um, it's not to say that we don't ever need to return to that for anything, but I do think that we have clearly demonstrated that there are options available to us that we were not exploring before. And um, I think that that's true in our workplaces, in our entertainment, in our social lives. And I, I hope that some of that sticks around. Yeah, that exactly, exactly. So my pop culture thing is about cooking because I have had to cook um, a lot. And I think we've, t- I think maybe we even talked about this on the show before. I don't know. I complain about cooking so much. That I can't remember where <laughs> I've complained about it at. Um, I've heard you do a lot of co- talking about cooking and I would say 80 to 90% is complaining. Because it is the most like, okay. So I've been spending a lot of time trying to figure out why I dislike it so much because I don't actually dislike cooking itself. Like I'm usually pretty satisfied at the end of it. It's all of the work, all of the mental work around it is just so frustrating to me because especially right now, because it just feels like so much labor to have to plan out a meal plan and then go find those recipes and then make sure I have those ingredients. And then if there isn't one of those ingredients, then like right now, since I've been ordering groceries and having them delivered, then I have, you know, three-fourths of the ingredients for a meal, but I don't know how to turn that into another meal. So now what do I do? And so it just like, and then I've been ordering um, random produce boxes from the farmer's market. And then I'm like, what do I do with this thing? Right. So it was just really, and, and cooking has never been a strong suit for me. So I'll just like give the backstory is, is that like, I went straight from living in a, in a house that there wasn't much cooking happening in. We basically just ate frozen food that we heated up in the microwave. I don't think that that's particularly atypical for a lot of people. I grew up in a, a single parent household from at least from the time I was 12. And, um, you know, my mom worked a lot and there were three of us and we didn't have a lot of money. And that, that was what we ate. Like I, I don't, have many memories of watching someone cook food. Um, and most of what we ate was just what we could throw together quickly from like freezer staples. Right. And so I definitely don't remember cooking with a lot of like fresh vegetables or fresh meat. And it just, I didn't get any of those skills. And then I went straight from there to college. And then I went, um, and where no I was living doing good yeah. cooking in college. No, like I, I didn't, I lived in a dorm. I didn't have. What are you going to do? Then I went, I moved in with my now husband. We were dating then into a tiny, tiny apartment where we literally could not turn around in the kitchen. Like it was just, you know, like that. I wasn't going to learn how to cook in that. Plus I was going to graduate school. So I did not have a whole lot of spare time on my hands and it wasn't a huge priority like from Target, honestly, and then the farmer's market. And then I, my local my local harvest grocery store also delivers. So I've been getting stuff there as well. What but most about all these, what do I miss most? Oh, um, I liked, I'm trying to think. My kids definitely liked like their ice cream bars. Like, so that is, they, we have not been getting those cause they are a lot more expensive elsewhere. Um, and I also just miss like, their produce selection was really good. Like they had really good produce 
And uh, that, especially since I'm not having someone else deliver it, which my shopper does an amazing job, but it's still just the selection isn't as good. So you never know what you're going to get. Sometimes she messages me and she's like, I don't know if you want this sad little zucchini. I'm like, that's, I have to have a zucchini. Just give it to me. So she's like, but it's depressing. I'm like, okay, I'm prepared. (laughs) I'm emotionally prepared for the zucchini. Um, (laughs) She just poses it next to a dead rat for you. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) For emphasis. Um, I prepare you for your zucchini. (laughs) So Christian girl autumn sad zucchini winter. (laughs) All that to say that I, cooking has been a hurdle for me as a piece of my domesticity that has never fallen into place. I even got a, we started using a chef service, which makes me feel very bougie, but I just was out of, I was like, I can't feed us anymore. And you people keep needing to eat every day and I don't understand it. So the, the way the service worked was that a person comes into your home, looks at the food you already have, makes a grocery list, goes and shops, comes back and makes five meals to leave in your refrigerator over the span of about five hours. It was amazing. And I felt like it was magic because like, I would just come home from taking, my, it was on the day that we were running around to all these different co-op classes for my, for my daughter. And I would just come home from that exhausted and I would open the refrigerator and it would be full of food that was ready to eat made out of fresh vegetables. And it was just astounding. And, and you have to think about it. Think about it. I and would say all. so much of the work is just thinking about it. And making sure you've had the time to think about it. Like, so, so all that to say, Magic. we had started using that service in January and then the pandemic came and the, the chef, you know, for a while I was just like, okay, let's just put it on hold. And then I was eventually like, this is just not, I'm like, I haven't even seen my mom in, yeah. like, I can't, I cannot justify Like, I can't do this. Like, I hate it, but I can't. And so I, I have not had that service. And instead I have been trying to mimic some of the lessons that were learned from it, right? Like, oh, I should cook all at once instead of trying to cook every night. I should do that labor. Like, and that has been a big difference. Like cooking, like I cook on Sunday mornings now and I cook for the whole week and that makes a huge, huge difference. But it is also really pointing to some of the gaps in my just like basic cooking knowledge because now I'm cooking multiple meals at the same time and I'm having to kind of navigate like, uh, how can I maximize using this ingredient so that I'm, you know, doing like, how can I, how can I make this run as smoothly as possible? Right. Like if I'm going to have to chop carrots for this anyway, what else can I do with these carrots? If I'm like, if I'm going to, you know, be making this thing over here, how long is it going to take? Do I have enough time to go do this other task for the next meal kind of thing? And I just don't have those skills and so I've been, I, I even, I went to Facebook and I was like, can, can anybody give me advice on like how to learn how to cook? And I, and this is not, if anybody who gave me advice is listening, I am not <laughs> knocking your advice because I appreciated and I did get some good tips in there and people sent me some delicious recipes, but I felt like I wasn't like asking the right questions because mostly people were just giving me recipes. And I'm like, uh, no, I, no, I'm like, no, no. <laughs> I'm like, I don't, and, and what I really want is to not have to use recipes. Right. 
That's, that's the holy grail that I don't understand. Because I'm like, I, it's too time consuming. One, it's too time consuming to have to look up the recipes and then find them back on my phone when I have my hands are dirty. And like, it's just, it's too much. And then when I don't have an ingredient, I'm too beholden to a recipe and I don't have the skills to flex around it. Right. So then I'm like, well, throw the whole thing out. Like, I guess we just have a refrigerator full of half these ingredients now. And so it has just been really frustrating for me. It just, it makes me, I, I don't like things that I'm not good at, which makes me sound really, um, like, which is not to Normal, say that I'm healthy, fine. <laughs> There's yes. someone who also hates Hates that feeling if we're not is, automatically good at something. Which is not to say that I am good at everything. It's just that I'm really good at avoiding the things I'm bad at. <laughs> like, which is also a skill. Yes, right? I'm really you good at saying someone to help you with it. That thing is not for me. I would like someone else to do it, please. I will do these things where my skills are valuable. This is it's an efficiency thing, right? Like, yeah. So I think it's a really. <laughs> Like one of the most grown up things I've ever done in my life is finally learning that my time is worth money. Right. And I feel like I'm taking forever to get to the actual pop culture part of this, but I do want to say that I I really dead rats for 20 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) I really, really, really learned that lesson when I got laid off from my full-time college professor position because I ended up just doing independent contractor work. And so I was doing independent contractor editing and ghostwriting, and I still do a little bit of it because it's, I mean, it's kind of fun and it is, it's a safety net for my, for my economic status, right? Like I, I need to have access to that. And it literally taught me the value of my time because I had to literally value my time. I had to, to say, oh, if you want to hire me for this, that job, it's going to take X amount of hours. And so I have to charge you X amount of dollars. And it really made me start thinking about my, because before that I was salaried, right? So like, I just had to get done however many things there were to get done in however much time existed, right? Like it wasn't, I never had to think about the slices of time as monetized in that same way. And once I was doing that independent contractor work, it was to the point where it was like, oh, this two hours I spent grocery shopping, like that is X amount of dollars, which could have purchased X amount of things. Like I could just see it all map out. And it really did make me decide to outsource some stuff where I was like, this is a wash at, at worst. At worst, I'm breaking even. And at best, I might be saving some money because I can now go spend that time working on this project that I don't have time to do otherwise. And so like, it, I really, I'm just, I've kind of given up the guilt over that where I'm like, great. Yeah. Good for you. But again, now pandemic, so I don't have all of those options available. And I like, I do enjoy, so I've gotten to now, since I've been doing this since March, I do have a few meals that I can make without recipes and with like, oh, if I don't have this ingredient, I can be like, oh, I bet this would work instead and try it. And it worked. And like, so I feel, I'm, and that makes me feel really good, both in the sense that like, it's kind of fun I like the, I like that kind of thinking. I don't like the remember which recipe it is and go find it in your tab, but I like the like flexible, creative kind of thinking. Like problem solving. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's not memorizing. It's, it's like problem solving and creative. And so when I saw cooking as that avenue, (laughs) so when I saw that cooking could require that kind of skill, I became much more interested in getting better at it. Whereas before I was like, this is a stopgap. Eventually I will hand this back over to someone else. 
But now I'm like, maybe I could actually gain this skill. So I started asking around, like, how do I gain this skill? And I wasn't getting any answers. <laughs> like, um, and I'm like, this is You're just getting secret? more recipes to memorize. I'm like, are you, are you all hiding this from me? Have you, is there like some this secret? Is so fascinating for me. Cause I do, I see all these blog posts about batch cooking and here's what you do. And they have beautiful photos but when I read it for tips, it's just recipes. And I it's, don't understand. It's like, here's step A, here's step D. And it, the and middle why, is unknowable. Why? This is, this is an aside. But why, why, why? When you write recipes, do you put the amounts of all the ingredients at the top? And then in the list, you say, put the butter in. And I'm like, how much butter? I don't want to scroll back up on my phone to find the amount of butter. And then scroll back down to find out what, oh, just Thank you, Michelle. Much. Yeah. Give me the top for my grocery shopping, but then write it into. Yep. Come on, people. Come on. Don't you know how much stress we're under? But anyway, <laughs> so all that to say that I, in the midst of this, I shared an article in the New York Times written by J. Kenji Lopez-Alt, written about how to stock your refrigerator like a chef, like how to keep things... And so that made me go look up Kenji's cookbook, which I have here. This gigantic, gigantic, The Food Lab by J. Kenji Lopez-Alt. And it is exactly what I was looking for. So that it's is my pop culture B&C. thing. What's oh, that? it's step B and C from Batch <laughs> Yes. So it is, like, as soon as I picked it up, and it was like a topic of an onion article that my friend sent me because it's like the cookbook is too big for anyone to ever actually use it. You know, like people <laughs> mock it because it's this gigantic tome with all. And it's like, how would you? And people were saying, like, how would you ever even use that? I'm like, because it's not supposed to be recipes. It's supposed to be learning. Like, it's like a textbook. So and I appreciate that Kinji, as he goes by, and he has a, apparently a cult following that I did not know about. Kinji. Treats me like I am smart, but like I know nothing. And that is what I need. <laughs> oh, I love that. And you just held the book up and it is huge. You struggled with it. You almost knocked your candle over. <laughs> yeah, it's a dangerous tome. But I like, as I was reading it, like it, I was like, oh, this is information I need. Like it told me, like I have this cast iron pot that's doing this weird flaky thing. And I was like, did I ruin it? Do I need to throw it away? And Kenji told me what I had done wrong and how to fix it in one of the chapters. And like, it tells you like what tools you need in your kitchen and which ones are, are you don't need, which ones you need to spend a lot of money on and which ones you don't need to spend a lot of money on how to store your food, how long you can keep it before it will go bad. Like it's just all of the information and I am so excited about it. So this is the library's copy, but mine just came in the mail. It's still downstairs and it's quarantine you know, quarantining the past. Oh yeah. I have that space in my basement, the quarantine (laughs) zone. If I don't want to wipe it down, it just lives there for a few days. Yep. So I am thrilled, Michelle. I'm thrilled. I've been looking for this in my life because I identify with this so strongly that, um, I own a lot of cookbooks. They don't get used because I love cooking. I love it, but I don't have time for it. Most of the time, um, I hate food waste. I hate food waste yes. more than anything. 
This is something that I get mean about. I don't like it in myself. Today, my husband had to throw out a hot dog he forgot about, and I was mean about it, and I still feel bad about it. But food waste, I will, I have given myself like food poisoning because I would rather eat something than let it go to waste. So many people who did respond to me were like, well, you learned your trial and error. I'm like, I'm feeding four people. I can't screw up four people worth of food and then have to go figure out how to feed four people when I don't have food. Like the stakes are too high. Like trial and error was for when I was 20 and 20 year old me didn't have a kitchen. So I I don't know what to tell you. I am am just a nerdy academic. Just give me everything in nerdy academic ease, but don't assume that I already have knowledge because I have none. That's that's what I need. It's for smart people who don't know anything. Yes. I love it. Are we on to research? We're on to research. Okay. On to research. So. My research this week, um, I'm realizing there's a pattern and that most of my research stuff is about art, but that's my research. And this is also a pattern because it's about something I consumed and that entertained me online. And so last Thursday, Christie's, which is an art auction house, they had um, in the art world, there ha- I mean, everyone's having trouble because of COVID. But a lot of museums and a lot of galleries are having trouble keeping the lights on because they can't sell tickets in the same way. They're not having as many visitors. And so there's been a lot of controversy and some rule changes about what kind of art can be sold and how art can be sold at auction. So Christie's is one of two main auction houses. Sotheby's is the other big one. And they've also been having trouble selling art because um, art auctions are something that happen in person, like most auctions. And you get into bidding wars and it's exciting. And so they are trying this new thing. And what they did was for the first time, they tried it in the summer, but this was like they're getting into the groove. They live streamed a giant, giant art auction And they live streamed it with Christie's in London and Christie's in Paris. And I understand why people watch sports for the first time in my life, because I tuned into the live stream art auction and it was, it was thrilling. I was screaming. I was cheering. Um, When like a work of art, I especially loved came up for sale. I I was like yelling at it to go higher and higher and like, you do it, you can do it, go, go, go. Um, So that was really, really interesting for me that I found myself feeling like what I think it feels like to watch sports. It's also um, really, really fun to watch art auctions because the auctioneers all have their own style of how they move their bodies. That's so interesting but I'm going to be pretty quick with this. I'm going to say, A, you can watch the live stream on YouTube, and I'll put that in the show notes. B, okay, they're going to do it again. Um, and this time, instead of London and Paris, they're going to live stream it between Hong Kong and New York. And I think that's going to be interesting because while New York is going to be an empty auction house, Hong Kong apparently is going to be able to be a 
full auction house, full of people. And so the research aspect of this, while I do encourage anyone who's interested in art to watch it because it's really exciting, the research aspect is that they had to change some rules for the kind of art that's being sold because the kind of art that's being sold is huge. Big blue chip brand name artists. They are selling Picassos. They are selling Matisse. They are selling Cy Twombly. They're selling um, Francis Bacon. They're selling artworks that live in museums, right? Because these are museums selling them. These are museums selling some of their like jewel pieces. There was um, the London Opera House sold off a work by David Hockney that they had to sell to keep the lights on. This is a piece that should stay in that space forever. And so while I was saying it's so exciting to watch the auction happen, it's also a really important moment for the art market and the art world because these sales are being made so that they don't have to fire their entire staff, so that they don't have to close these spaces forever. And it's exciting to see these works, but you realize they're being sold most of the time to private owners now. And these are works that, um, what makes them so special and why it's odd they're growing up at auction is most of the time they're works that went from the artist straight to the museum or from the artist straight to the collector who owns them. And no one's ever seen them except in a museum. Sometimes these works have never been seen, period. There was a Basquiat that went up that he made for the person he gave it to and no one's seen it before. And now you can buy it. And um, the thing is that A, the museums had to get some special accommodations to do this because there are rules. So you can't just go pawning off great works of art that should be kept in museums so that the public has access to them. And recently the Baltimore Museum of Art tried to do this as well to keep their lights on. And the board said, you can't do it. They voted it down. So now there's some backlash to say, these pieces are historic. We cannot let them go out into the world, into the wind to private collectors who may or may not take care of them. We don't know where they're gonna go. The other thing that interested me in my research, a lot of people don't, a lot of art historians don't like talking about the art market. They think it's a dirty thing and they wish that art could just exist outside of it. But I think the fact that artwork is its own market and lives within the market and is always um, oftentimes worth so much money is, is magical. One of my favorite artists is Maurizio Catalan. He's the artist that taped a banana to the wall and it sold for like, you know, $25,000, $125,000, $250,000. And I love, I love art's connection to money. It's magic. It's magic that it's worth so much money. But what happened at the auction that's really interesting to me is that these are pieces that were estimated to go for a lot of money, right? When we're talking a Francis Bacon, when we're talking a Cy Twombly, when we're talking a Pablo Picasso, it should go for a lot. And so they were auctioning them off. They had the estimates, low-end estimate, high-end estimate at the bottom. And 
for the most of the auction, these works, Matisse, um, Magritte, were not even going for the low end of their estimates. Um, people were getting these insane deals. They just weren't selling for what they were supposed to be selling for. And as the auction went on, some of the people who had works up started pulling them and saying, well, we're, we're not going to sell them then because it's yeah, because going for that. I mean, and, it's sad yeah. enough that they're having to sell them off, but if they're also not going to get them the money they need to continue operating, like that's extra, extra sad, right? Like, yeah. 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 It's a really, especially since these are works that, um, it's not like the market's oversaturated. Right. These are works that you're not going to see. So it's a really, really bad sign for the art world because they can't keep the lights on. They can't sell them off. And there were, there were some exciting things. Um, Marina Abramovich, who's a performance artist, sold the very first time a mixed reality work went up for sale. Mixed reality is a fancy name for virtual reality. And that, I encourage you to look at the YouTube video because it's just ridiculous. It's all these art world people with a virtual reality headset, gamer headset on, trying to look excited. It's not a great work of art, but it was supposed to go for $2 million and it went for about $230,000, which I realize is still a lot of money. Not, but... Yeah, no, if you had a home you were trying to sell for $2 million and you sold it for $230,000, you would not be excited about that. You know, like that, this is, these are, yeah. Yeah, so I'm just really interested in what's happening in the market. And, but then I will say, all these dead white men not selling, they got up more and more to contemporary art. And um, some of my favorite contemporary artists came up and Titus Kaffer, who is an artist I teach all the time. He has an amazing TED Talk, which I will put in the show notes. I find any excuse I can to teach his TED Talk. It's really, really good. He won a MacArthur Genius Grant recently, but he's a living artist. And he, I think, he doubled his high-end estimate. So his work sold for a lot. And then there were a couple more contemporary artists who beat their high-end estimate. Okay. So, so was that that they were undervalued to begin with? Like, was the art world undervaluing where they were at? Or is, because then that's a sign that it's not that there isn't money that's fluid within the art world. It's just about where they're willing to put it. Yeah. Interesting. And that made me a little excited because I think you hit the nail on the head that maybe it's not people aren't willing to spend. Because also like a week ago, a T-Rex went up at auction. I saw that. Yeah. And it went for a lot. It was, it set a record for T-Rexes. I didn't, um, I, I didn't tell my four-year-old that there was a T-Rex for sale. Cause I feel like he would have been upset with me. You, yeah. If he knew that and you did not buy that for him, what, what are you doing? So, not mother of the year. It's, no, no. <laughs> um, I mean, but there was like, I'm a, I mean, man, just knowing that like a Magritte went up for sale that in theory, I have enough money in my bank account to buy, like it would have ruined me and bankrupt me, but that's not right. That's not how things should go. But I think you hit the nail on the head that it's not that there isn't 
money to go around, but where the art world is valuing it is shifting. And that's what I hope is the case. And I hope it's shifting to artists like Titus Kaffer, who are not old white men, right? He's a very exciting black artist. And I just hope that people are finally getting over, um, yeah, that 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 like a genius artist has to look this way, and his work is amazing. So I'll put the um, TED talk in the links, and the other. But I will say the other thing was they had an Italian art sale. Most of the Italian art didn't even sell. It didn't even meet the low estimate to sell. But guess who exceeded all of the high end estimates and doubled some of them sometime quadrupled some of them at one point went 10 times over the high-end estimate was Boetti, who is the artist we talked about several weeks ago when I made you guess when you were going to die. So shout outs to Boetti as well. He's 10 times? 10, one of his works went for like 10 times what they thought it was going to go for. Wow. I think that we're going to, I think it's going to be easy to connect the dots today. I feel like. Okay, cool. I'm excited. All right. So my researchy thing, I'll try to keep it pretty quick is um, I started reading this article. Sorry, you were ready. Oh yeah. Done, done. Okay. I started reading this article about how um, there's bias in algorithms, which I had heard about before, right? How like AI has racial bias and the biases like that. We, we want to think of all of these machines around us as much more objective than humans, but because they've been programmed by humans and created by humans, we have created our own biases into them. Right. Um, so that was not a new idea for me. It was, you know, it's something that as we studied in, in, rhetoric classes in my graduate school. It's something I've seen happen in the world around me. But this article was, it was in the Atlantic and I'll put it in the show notes. Um, and it was specifically about how teens of color are being particularly impacted by algorithmic bias during the pandemic because teens are spending almost all of their time online right now because like their social lives are online, their school lives are online. And like, they're just, they're spending so much time online and there's all these social media platforms that are almost entirely populated by teens. And the algorithmic biases are impacting them at a higher rate than adults, um, both because they're spending more time online in these spaces where the algorithms can impact them and because they are still at an age where they're forming their own identity. So these biases psychologically have a deeper impact on them. And I didn't read this other article yet, but as I was logging in to Zoom for this for our podcast, I noticed that there was a Washington Post article about Facebook algorithms um, creating echo chambers for particularly for conservatives because um, it's, it's sort of the same thing going on here that they're not necessarily set out to be I mean, it's, it's not designed to be something negative. Like they're not trying to, to bake in some sort of negative bias, but it's that a lot of these algorithms are trying to guess what kind of media you want to consume. And so they use, in some cases, your own profile image to then tell you who you should be listening to or who you should be reading. And so they kind of create these little bubbles just based off of your physical appearance, right? Um, and then they did this TikTok one because TikTok was like, we don't do that. We don't, we don't make, we, we're not using your profile picture to tell you who to follow. 
But what they found out was that, um, so somebody did an experiment where they made multiple profiles and then they would follow one person and then they would just see, they would just follow whoever TikTok told them to follow next. And like every single time, like if there was a, if they were a blonde woman who followed a blonde woman, they would end up following only blonde women. If they were a black man who followed a black man, they would end up following only black men. And like, so it was, if they were a big white guy with a beard, they would end up following only big white guys with a beard. Like it was just like over and over and over again. And TikTok tried to like come to its defense in the face of this research. And they're like, look, like, people who follow people tend to follow these other people. And we're just telling you, hey, if you like that thing, you will probably also like this thing based on the fact that people who like that thing like this thing. You know, like they were like, we didn't bake bias into it. It's just how people behave. And we're like, well, people behave with bias. So you kind of did. And so so there is, my researchy thing is that there is an algorithmic justice league. And so uh, they're, they're doing all this research and they have all these like calls to action. I think it's associated with MIT. And, um, so I was, I was looking into this and they, um, there's just, there are all these efforts to kind of combat this because I don't think that a lot of these companies are doing it on purpose, but I think that we just need to recognize that we are very susceptible to this kind of echo chamber creation that um, the reason that these platforms are so successful at predicting what we want is because we're pretty predictable at falling into these patterns. And yeah. so the, the question then becomes like, even if the, if the platforms are right, like maybe we should be using them to break that habit, right? Yeah. Like, like even if they're right, that they're giving us what we want, that maybe we should tell them we would prefer that you don't give us what we want because what we want is actually a problem, right? Like, and so that we could create algorithms that specifically are designed to break us out of those echo echo chambers if we were conscious about it. And so the algorithmic justice league just kind of um, opens up some of the, so one of the research projects they did was that they took a bunch of different devices that use voice recognition and they ran all of the voice recognition stuff um, using different, and it was like, I don't know, like 200 different speakers. And they found out that the most errors were among black speakers who used African-American vernacular English. And so obviously these voice things, when they're programming them, they're not using speakers with a wide range of English dialects, especially not black English dialects. And so they are not picking up those speech patterns. Similarly, there was a study and there's a TED talk for this one um, from an MIT I think it was a thesis, so maybe an MIT um, master's student, I think, who was studying the way that facial recognition software identified. And it was the like three biggest names. It was Microsoft's and um, Face++ and then one other one and comparing how accurate they were at identifying gender by face. And they were all the most accurate at identifying white males. And they were all the least accurate at identifying black females. And so all of them, they were, that was, in, and the biggest gap was in Microsoft had like a 30% gap. And so they were misidentifying one in three black women. And like, so a major, major difference. Whereas it had like, I don't like a 97% accuracy rate for white men or whatever. So just huge gaps in how these platforms are playing out. And I mean, we could talk about whether we want AI recognizing any of our faces, but. Right. But if they're going to, 
And so, I mean, let's just say, right, that it's not an, it would be great if we could say, oh, it's great. They can't recognize those faces. But of course, that's not an advantage. And the way we're deploying AI, that's a huge disadvantage that your face is misrecognized. I mean, we're going we're going to be living in a world where this technology is everywhere. And so even if it is just little inconveniences, to have to put up with little inconveniences all day long because the software doesn't recognize your face is, I mean, that's a racial, that's, that's a racial problem, right? To have yeah. to be like, if, if you are a black woman, then your phone isn't going to open for you because the yeah. facial recognition software doesn't work for your face, you know, like, um, so yeah, so that's my researchy thing is that there is an algorithmic justice league and that they're doing a lot of research into these different areas where algorithms have bias and they're trying to kind of call our attention to it, make us ask some questions about what kind of world we want to live in and what we're willing to do to make those algorithms bend to the will of what we want rather than just kind of follow our worst impulses. And I think that that's really interesting work. That's amazing. Cause yeah, I know a lot about how biased technology and algorithmic technology is. It's a huge, huge problem, but to know that there's an algorithmic justice league, I have no idea. And that's fascinating. Oh, I love that. I want to learn all about them. And they're based at MIT. I think I I know that this the at least part of the research was coming out of MIT. So that person is associated with it and uh her research was was major was a major focus. So I don't know if the whole thing is connected with MIT, but um that research definitely was. All right. Are we ready to I just want to think about that more. I'm going to edit this part out again. Like I'm going to do some editing, but I just, there's so, I just really like the idea of on, you know, there's so much I was reading today about um, YouTube videos for kids that have, um, I don't know if you've come across this, but the kind of plague of YouTube videos for kids that will have a lot of Disney characters and Peppa Pig characters, cartoon characters, all mashed together, but then doing very weird, violent things. Mm -hmm. And why, why is that, right? Why are there so many of those videos and why do they come up so much? Do you know why that is? I have read, so, Mostly when I see people talking about that, it's in these like incredible conspiracy theory, like the pedophiles are trying to get our kids through YouTube stuff. And I'm like, and that doesn't ring, that doesn't ring like a very effective method to me. Um, so like, I, I just, I feel like that's not what's happening. Um, but I, I don't let my kids have access to YouTube without me being there. So it hasn't come up for us personally yet. And I just kind of have taught my, my daughter is about to turn 10 and I'm kind of just taught her the internet is a cesspool. You should trust nothing, nothing ever. (laughs) That's a really good way to go, but it's algorithmic. Most of those videos are centered at children because they can be made um, largely by AI, right? They're not made by people. Um, because children aren't connoisseurs of those things. They like bright colors. They like um, cartoon characters they can identify. And those are easily made um, and generated by software, not people. 
And the way that YouTube works, the play next, that's how you get it, right? Is the sweet spot of ad revenue is getting into the play next lists. And so they do it through having keywords and you more and more these days cannot identify your own keywords, right? Because I know you do this and you make a point of this, um, of helping software when there's an image of telling it what's in that image. And so it used to be that you could put in your own keywords and that um, Facebook will listen to, or YouTube will listen to that. But now more and more, it actually has to have that content in it for it to identify what's in it and use those keywords to make sure that it gets into the play next. And that's how you generate revenue. So it's a huge source of easy revenue if you can have um, AI software, make it, no humans are making it, pump it out and get it into the play next. And I'm like, okay, I understand that. And I understand that kids wanna see Elsa from Frozen and Peppa Pig again and again. But why does it get sexual and why does it get violent? And it's because that is what YouTube as a whole people want to see. That's what will be clicked on most. And so it has nothing to do with children and it has nothing to do with what they want to see. It's what en masse people click on is the sexual things, the violent things. And so then it just makes children's cartoon characters do that because of the algorithm. And it's the same as you said, that men with beards will bring men with beards will bring men with beards. And it's this self-serving cycle that overall on YouTube, the most popular things tend to be all caps, violent, like buried underground kind of things and it's, so it's, no, no one's making that. Pedophiles aren't making those. Robots are making those. You just, the robots are like, I'm giving you what you want. Why are you That's upset with me? Is. You told me you wanted Elsa buried underground. Like, yeah. Yep. All it is, it's no one doing it on purpose except us en masse. It's the same reason that the Google chatbot became a Nazi in two days. It's just us. It, there's no conspiracy except us we are the conspiracy we we are the people we warned ourselves about uh sorry yeah okay so that aside um let's connect this let's connect okay so our weird things are embracing happiness wherever you can find it even if it is a picture of a dead rat yes and Vampire. not being ashamed of your happiness. Not being ashamed. Don't hide your happy. Vampires didn't have fangs until the 1950s. Those were our weird things. Pop culture was circle jerk. The the play, the live stream play. And um, the, what was the cookbook called? The not Food Lab. The, the Food Lab. The Food Lab. The cookbook for smart people who don't know anything. Research was the Algorithm Social Justice League and art auctions. All right. What do you, I, I have some ideas, but do you? I mean, I, I, think, I think some part of it is going to be about the world 
is moving in a direction where we are going to embrace what makes us happy. I, this is how this always goes. I stutter and stop and you come in with a brilliant save. But I think the world is figuring out that we can put pretensions aside. We can put aside what's always been what is correct, what's always been what is in good taste, um, what's always been the right way to consume culture and say, hey, no, um, do what you want, do what you like. And I think that's allowing in more diverse voices and that's allowing in more accessibility. And um, then you can look at pictures of that. Yeah. So I, I mean, I, think, I agree with everything that you just said. And what I would add to that is, is I think that the theme that you can see through this is that there have been all these times of change, right? Like the vampires with the things that was because the technology changed. Yeah. And uh, the the play that you watch, the technology was changing because of the pandemic. And yeah. the art, the what's being auctioned off is changing because of the, the pressure around the pandemic. But then at the same time, it's about us trying to figure out, well, if this is a time of change, we have to take the time to choose what we want it to change into. Because if we just let it, like, if we just let it be us, it won't be good. Because we do have these pressures of, like, what we think we're supposed to like and how we're supposed to hide our candles and our Einstein pictures. And, like, literally hiding our bushels, (laughs) hiding our light under a bushel. What is that phrase? hide it under a bushel. No, I'm going to let it shine. <laughs> so let it shine is the theme, right? Like be- fortune cookie. because we are at a time of shift. And if we don't make honest, conscious decisions about what we want, we will end up with Peppa Pig being stabbed over and over again. That is, that's where, that's where we'll go. Well, Michelle, I was going to edit all that out and now I'm not. I'm happy. I'm happy I get to leave in my weird algorithms of YouTube. <laughs> yeah, um, no, exactly. We, we, it's us, right? It's not, it's not an unknown technological force. Um, the change is us and we have to be responsible for it, but we also get to be responsible for it. Yes. Yes. That's a perfect way to put it. We have to be responsible, but we get to be responsible. That's exactly right. Because, and, and to connect it with the, the food, the cookbook, like it's time consuming and annoying to get it right. Like it's, it's a lot of labor to get it right, but it's worth it, right? Like it's worth it. And then it's your food. It's not a recipe that you are beholden to. It's not a dead white man's art that you bought because culture says it's good. Own art that makes you happy. Um, make food that makes you happy. I lost the plot there for a second, but we were really, we were going there. We were Yeah, going. no, I mean, I think that that, what you said, that you you have to do it, but you get to do it. That, yeah. that's the theme, right? Like, that's the thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. yep. So don't hide your light and be the change. <laughs> be the change you want to see in the world. No, I'm going to edit that out because I think don't hide your light's a good good enough one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
All right. So that is a wrap. Don't hide your light. Don't hide your fangs. Or your Albert Einstein pictures. Or your Albert Einstein pictures. Let them shine. Dead rats. Or your... Maybe maybe hide your dead rats. (laughs) Unless it's for the right person. That's right. If you have found your person that you can show your dead rat to... Well, that's a blessing as well. And if you have found your person that you can talk about that person to in a podcast, that is also a blessing. So with that, Michelle, thank you for being that person for me. And we'll see you all in two weeks. Goodbye. Goodbye.